Apple presents Meet the Author. Please welcome tonight's guest, Mark Russ Fetterman. There was a time when your neighborhood had a bakery, a butcher shop, fresh fish store, a fruit and vegetable stand. That's the way business was done. And if you lived in a Jewish neighborhood, you also had a delicatessen and an appetizing store. These were small specialty shops, family owned and generally founded by immigrants. And when you walked in the door, the guy behind the counter, the guy greeting you, the guy wiping off the knives and the scales and sweeping the floor, they were all part of the same family. This method of doing business has pretty much given way to big box, big glitz, one-stop shopping, gourmet supermarkets, and even the internet. It's all designed for the ease of shopping of the customer-consumer. Some people think that that's progress. I think that we've lost something from that experience. Now, you may have gone to these shops with your parents or your grandparents. If you were lucky enough, you noticed how they were greeted at the door, how your parents and grandparents seemed to know what value and quality was, and they were able to demand it. This is where they and you learned to shop for food. At the same time, there was something else going on beyond the commercial transaction of money and food passing across the counter. There were stories to be told. There were relationships to be forged and maintained, perhaps for generations. And there was a whole culture to be kept. Russ and Daughters is an appetizing store located on the Lower East Side and we've been there for about a hundred years. I am the grandson of Joel Russ, the founder. I am the third generation to own and run the business. I am the son of one, Joel, of, one of Joel Russ's daughters. And now the business has been passed on to the fourth generation, my daughter and my nephew. In my retirement, I've now had the opportunity to reflect as opposed to react to what has happened over that period of 100 years since Grandpa Russ landed here and started his business from a pushcart selling herring on Hester Street. And basically, the conclusion I come to uh, and that I write about in the book is that we were once a Jewish store selling Jewish food in a Jewish neighborhood to Jewish customers. A hundred years later, if you look back on that, just about every part of that sentence has been changed. The customers who once spoke, or at least had the accent of Yiddish, now in the store you hear British or French or German or Italian or any place else in the world. The foods that we sold were once considered very ethnic but now the humble herring has become au cuisine and everybody knows about bagels and lox. 
It's gone from our little Jewish enclave on the Lower East Side to becoming mainstream. At least it's identified with New York. The Bagel and Locks is about New York. The employees were once the family acting like employees, and this day we have employees who act like family. And the neighborhood, as some of you may know, has gone from ghetto to tenement chic, from pushcart to posh. Let me talk first about the basic history of Russ and Daughters. Grandpa Russ came from Eastern Europe, an area uh, now part of Eastern Poland or, or Western Ukraine that was known as Galicia and that was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. He was, however, a poor shtetl Jew. There was no royalty in our family. They had to scratch out a living and like most of Eastern European Jews, actually a million and a half of them, that were driven out of Eastern Europe between 1880 and 1923, and they were driven out by poverty, pestilence, and pogroms. Everybody knows that. What's less well known is that Grandpa Russ came to America because of herring. It was his sister who preceded him here by a few years his sister, Hannah, who was in the herring business. Hannah had married a man, Mr. Eben, uh, who had been in the business, and, and to set this up correctly, the herring business in those days was basically having a couple of barrels of herring in an alleyway uh, in between two tenements. Passers-by would stop off and get their meal for the evening, which would be a herring or two at five cents each that were fished out of wooden barrels wrapped in uh, newspaper of the day, and they would take it home and put in potatoes and onions and put it in their coal-fired stove, and that became the meal for a family. But Mr. Eben decided one day that he would be a rabbinical or Talmudic scholar. That is, he would study from the holy books, and he would no longer have time to run his little herring business. So he left that, and the eight children he had given uh, Hannah Eben to her devices, she in turn sponsored her younger brother, Joel, to come over from Eastern Europe. The cost of sponsorship in those days was $25. And that doesn't sound like much, but in those days, at five cents each for a herring, that's a lot of herring. Joel came over, and, uh, and he worked for his sister for a while, and she helped him set up his first push cart not far from here on Hester Street. Uh, and after three years, uh, he had made enough money to pay her back and to strike out on his own and discover America. And like many Jews, he made it as far as Brooklyn. In Brooklyn, he set up a candy store, uh, equally an immigrant type of business just because the capital investment was so low. He had a candy store which he ran for uh, three years, sold that, came back to the Lower East Side, and bought his first appetizing store on Orchard Street. Now what I should do here is, is uh, for those of you who don't know, and many don't, uh, what an appetizing store is, and that's best uh, defined by what it's not. It is not a delicatessen. In fact, uh, those two worlds 
don't meet. They operate in the same universe, but they don't meet. They're parallel. Delicatessen specialized in smoke-cured and pickled meats. That's pastrami, salami, brisket, frankfurters, and everything that went along with that. Appetizing stores specialized in smoke-cured and pickled fish. So it's herring and lox and whitefish and everything that goes along with that. Well, usually the things that go along with uh, the fish items are dairy items. Cream cheese, butter, sour cream sauce for the herring. And because of Jewish dietary laws, you're not supposed to eat or even sell in the same location meat and dairy. Ergo, we have delicatessens and we have appetizing stores. Russ and Daughters is an appetizing store. Joel Russ moved his, uh, sold his candy store and then opened his first store on Orchard Street and then by this point in 1914 uh, he had his first of three daughters, Hattie, and they were living in the back of this little appetizing store. So it was Grandma Russ, Grandpa Russ, and Ann Hattie in the back of the store sharing a room with herring barrels. When the second daughter came along, Ida, I became a little too tight, and Grandpa Russ then rented a, 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 an apartment. An apartment was like maybe 200 square feet in a tenement across the street, walk-up tenement. The whole neighborhood then was about tenements, and basically commerce was done in the streets by pushcart. The Lower East Side was the most densely populated place on the face of the earth. Forget Calcutta or Shanghai or any place else you can think of. There were more people per square foot in the Lower East Side than any place else. And before refrigeration, the foodstuffs were sold on push carts, and people didn't have a place to store them, so shopping was a, was a daily or several times a day activity. Grandpa Russ did as most Jews who landed in the Lower East Side tried to do, which was get out of the Lower East Side. That was not a place you wanted to settle. Now what's happened today is the diaspora of Jews from the Lower East Side across the country, as Jews spread out across the country, they look back and they tend to romanticize the Lower East Side. They mythologize it, they think it was the best, actually it was the worst place, and the idea was to get out. But to many Jews across the country, because now with this book I travel around doing book events, you know, I can see them, oh, the Lower East Side, and it was this, and it was wonderful, and uh, and to, the, to many Jews, the Lower East Side has become the motherland because more Jews have a connection with the Lower East Side than they do with Israel. Everybody's grandmother, great-grandmother somehow passed through or stayed in, for some period of time, the Lower East Side. And so the Lower East Side has become the motherland and the language of the motherland is not Hebrew to this diaspora of Jews, but it's food. So the food of the Lower East Side is what people around the country now are hungering for, if not the food, the stories about the food. So the Russ family fits right into that. We are the Lower East Side, we are the food of the Lower East Side, and we, like many of the Jews of the time, 
tried to get out of the Lower East Side. That was the concept. So Grandpa Russ did on various occasions make a couple of bucks by the sale of herring and get the family out, first to Williamsburg, lost the money, came back, then to Corona, Queens, came back. He finally was able to get the family out in, uh, in 1926 in what everybody thought was permanent to Flatbush in Brooklyn to a two-family house with, uh, with two kitchens and two parlors and a big garden, but it also had two mortgages. But everybody was happy there for a while. And even Grandma Russ, also from a poor shtetl in Eastern Europe, who had never accepted this country. As poor as she was in the old country, she had lived on a farm. And the Lower East Side for her was not what the Golden Land was supposed to be. But with this house and the garden in Flatbush in Brooklyn, Grandma Russ finally said, good place, America. 1929, you will know, was the big crash. In 1932 was the height of the Depression. So this two-family house, Grandpa Russ had two mortgages, and two bankers showed up at his doorstep and said, Mr. Russ, it's your business or your house. And from that comes the family mantra in Yiddish, Vinemmen Parnusa, which means from where do we take our living or how do we survive? And to him, the survival was about the business, which was the only way they were generating any income. So Grandpa Russ gave up the gave up the family house in Brooklyn and moved the family back to the Lower East Side to a terrible tenement. First floor, cockroach infested, and that move broke Grandma Russ's spirit for all time. She was sickly and really never recovered from that move back. Nonetheless, the business had to be protected and his daughters had to come into the business. There wasn't a question of them going to college, and for two out of three, there wasn't even a question of finishing high school. They had to work in the business, and so they did. And someplace along the line, they met their suitors who became their husbands. Grandpa Russ had the right of first refusal. Would he accept them as his sons-in-law? And that depended upon whether he judged they could schlep barrels of herring from the back to the front, whether they could add up a column of numbers on a brown paper bag with a pencil behind their ear, whether they could slice locks, and whether they would look good behind the counter. Uh, Grandpa Russ and Grandma Russ were an arranged marriage. He wasn't going to do that to his daughters because Grandpa and Grandma Russ were married I think for over 50 years, but as far as I could tell, there was never any outward sign of affection between the two of them. Grandpa Russ, or Grandma Russ would call Grandpa by his last name, Russ, pronounced with the heavy Eastern European accent, Russ, and he would call her Zug, which in Yiddish loosely translates to Hey You. So Grandpa was not going to do this to his daughters. On the other hand, he had to pass on whether they would be appropriate for the business, and he accepted all three suitors and uh, all three daughters married. That, in turn, allowed them to take it easy. And taking it easy in the Russ family is you, for the women, you could stay home and raise your 
children, but you still had to work on the weekends and on holidays 10 and 12 hours a day. So the business began to run, be run by the sons-in-law and, and then after World War II, business picked up. Actually, it wasn't bad during World War II because there was money to be made in black market canned goods. Uh, but that was sort of the golden age of the Lower East Side. And then help was hired uh, and from the local population, which was largely, still largely Jewish at that point. What happens is that um, I come into the business in the beginning of 1978. So the three, by this point, everybody had either died or retired and my parents were the last to run the business. Uh, at this point, I was practicing law and had been practicing law for uh, eight or nine years. So here's where I see my life and the story is somewhat ironic. Uh, my parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles worked hard, really hard six days a week, 10, 12 hours a day, in terrible conditions. Uh, they stood on their feet, they dealt with uh, very difficult customers, difficult product. Uh, they came home dog-tired, they worked on weekends, they worked on holidays, and, and when they came home was smelling pretty much like a herring. It was their desire that their children not do this for a living, that they would work that hard so that my generation, the seven grandchildren of Joel Russ, would not have to do that. That maybe we would get college educations that they didn't have, and maybe we would work in offices, and we would work five days a week, and we would put on coats and ties, and we wouldn't come home smelling fishy. We would come home smelling the same way we went to work. That was their fantasy. The ultimate fantasy, of course, if you're Jewish, is that uh, you're one of your children would become uh, a professional, a doctor, a lawyer, an accountant, a dentist. Uh, that was the ultimate fantasy. So the irony is that of the seven Russ grandchildren, I'm the guy who got the most education, probably the most nerdy or the most bookish. I graduated college. We all went to college, but I went on for a graduate degree. I went to law school. I did well. I got a job in a law firm, ultimately. I did well. And then I'm the one who chose to come back into the business that they worked so hard in making sure I wouldn't be in. Why did I do that? I wrote a book to figure it out, and you can tell when you read the book that I didn't figure it out. But nonetheless, for me, it worked out well. The irony continues in that I know what the, work, uh, the world of work is about, the professionals, the big businessmen, the, my friends, doctors, and lawyers. And now I want my children to come into the business. My son is the black sheep of the family. He's a doctor. I'm the only Jewish father who's upset that his kid wanted to be a doctor. I'm thinking sturgeon, he's hearing surgeon. My daughter, however, as I develop in the book, uh, comes in, leaves, comes in. But she now, with her cousin, my nephew, are the owners of Russ and Daughters. Before this happens, and when I first come in, I inherit the, the employees that my parents had left me, a very motley crew, and needless to say, I'm sure you can figure out, they were not happy to see me show up and take over Russ and Daughters. 
one guy in particular I call the Farbissner, dried up angry guy, expected that he would get the business. And when I show up, he's not able to make his peace with this, and uh, he's undercutting me every step of the way. And I ultimately, well, let me step back, because I want to read you a bit about two quite unusual characters that, uh, from Russ and Daughter's history that are still there. Uh, that's Herman and Jose. Herman Vargas and Jose Reyes are cousins from the Dominican Republic. And as the Jews moved out of the Lower East Side, successive waves of immigrants move in at various times. So at some point, uh, it's Puerto Ricans, and at some point, the Dominicans, now it's South Asians. It keeps, this cycle keeps on going. So the local stores draw on the local population for, uh, for employees in the store. And I had Jose originally, uh, and he was put to work in the kitchen. And then Herman one day, his cousin, had just that day arrived, 17 years old from the Dominican Republic, came in just to say hello to his cousin. It was probably a, ho a holiday time, and I offered him a job immediately. And so he goes in the back and he talks to his cousin. He needs some money. He agrees to work. This is about 35 years ago. He's now manager of the store. But let me, I have here marked uh, a little piece that I've written about Herman and Jose because this is really a New York story. The end of World War II hastened the exodus of Jews from the Lower East Side. Jewish veterans returned with a desire to participate in the American dream, which meant leaving the ghetto for the suburbs. In the 1950s, Latinos, first Puerto Ricans, then Dominicans, began filling up the tenements that the Jews had once occupied and taking over the garment center sweatshop jobs. Jose Reyes and Herman Vargas, young Dominicans and cousins, were part of this new wave of immigration to the Lower East Side and therefore part of the new labor force as well. Their first jobs at Russ and Daughters were in the kitchen, peeling onions, pickling herrings, and washing dishes. Clearly not what they had come to America for. But they did their jobs exceptionally well and with a positive attitude and a most incredible spirit. About two years after I took over the business, I had finally had it with the motley crew of lock-slicing prima donna countermen that I had inherited. One day in a fit of pique, I brought Jose and Herman out from the kitchen and put them behind the counter. Whatever the motivation, it was a bold move. Placing Latinos behind the smokefish counter in a traditional Jewish appetizing store had never been done before. This was cutting edge. Our customers, the toughest New York has to offer, were not going to make this easy. It was understood that this was a Jewish store selling Jewish food prepared and sliced by Jewish employees. That was the culture, a given. Some customers were merely put off, some were offended, and some actually walked out, their loss. As it turned out, these two men had talents I wasn't even aware of. And as a result, both are still behind the counter and remain integral to the success and atmosphere of Russ and Daughters. 
Jose has hands of gold and slices salmon with a skill of a great surgeon. He says very little, but he doesn't need to. Most customers are more than pleased just to stand there and watch this virtuoso at work. Slicing salmon for Jose is like a meditation, and he is recognized by all as the Zen counterman. He is also our chief caviar packer. Never is a single egg broken. I have Jose's hands insured by Lloyd's of London. I have been known to quip. His place behind the counter is in the middle of the store. No other counterman would think of encroaching on his space or using his knife. Jose has been late only once in his 35 years at Russ and Daughters, and that was the day of the citywide blackout in 1977. He has also never been sick. He went to the doctor only once when he got his finger caught and bruised in the showcase door. He comes to work perfectly groomed and leaves the same way even after 10 hours or more on his feet behind the counter. For most of the years he has been with us, Jose wore several 8 to 10 heavy gold chains around his neck. Perhaps this was his way of saying to the world that he had made it in America. But now he wears only a single chain with a single charm, the two-letter Hebrew word chai, which means life. No doubt he is now secure in his place in the store and in the world. Jose is devoted to his customers, and they are just as devoted to him. Herman has been featured in the Calvin, Trevel, Tr Calvin Trillin novel, Tepper Isn't Going Out, as Herman the Artistic Slicer. And he is. But Herman also has the personality and charm of a great salesman, and a degree of patience and humility not normally found in the genome of Jewish appetizing store workers. And to top it off, Herman also has an uncanny ear for languages. To the old-time customer who would attack him with, what do you know about slicing locks? Herman would reply, as ich can learn in Yiddish, ich can schneiden locks. If I learn how to speak Yiddish, I can slice locks. It was not long before those customers who used to demand a Jewish counterman lined up to wait for Herman to fillet their herring and slice their locks while he conducted a running commentary in Yiddish. And it was not long before the customers would ask me, where's the Puerto Rican kid who takes care of me, the one who speaks Yiddish? In those days, every Latino in New York was identified by native New Yorkers, themselves either immigrants or children of immigrants, as a Puerto Rican, no matter where they came from. This, uh, this as I say to you, is, is a very New York story. The family was the original employees, and then you drew on the successive waves of immigrants, those that were available to do the work, and they in turn assimilated, uh, and now as I say, they help run Russ and Daughters. So that's the concept of the employees. Now I'd like to talk a little bit about the change in the customers. Besides the fact that they've gone from Yiddish inflection to British, there's a whole change of attitude in customers these days. The old-time customer is an endangered species, a very special type. I say that waiting on those old-timers is a cross between making love and an act of war. These people would walk into the store and immediately assume you were trying to pull something on them. 
made no difference that you showed them both hands, they thought somehow your thumb was on the scale. But there was a reason for it. And it took me a while to realize these are people who had never been given anything in their lives. They worked for everything they have. And they were going to make sure that you were going to work for them at that moment and do what was right for them. And they were going to put you to the test. Now I appreciate the old time customer. Now it seems the customers are younger. They're also very nice. They take a number, they say thank you, please. This never happened in the old days. You couldn't even give a number to it. Me take a number? Now it's, it's a different species of customers. It's a lot more pleasant than for us. Uh, so let me describe this uh, by reading to you a short passage about one customer who seems to be the, the quintessential old timer. Mrs. Manny, as she referred to herself, had five children, four boys who had graduated from the best schools and were now very successful professionals, and a daughter. She and her late husband had raised these children on the Lower East Side. Now her grandchildren were attending Ivy League schools. She would quell to us about all of them. Every year, seven days before Rosh Hashanah, our busiest time of the year, Mrs. Manny would emerge from the subway on the corner of Houston Street and 2nd Avenue between 6.30 and 6.40 p.m., pushing her little metal shopping cart. The store closed at 7 p.m. When she was spotted at the front door, the exhausted counter staff let out a collective groan. Some fled to the kitchen area in the back, while others went into slow motion with their current customers so that they wouldn't have to wait on her. She was sweet, but she was demanding. She demanded quality, she demanded value, she demanded service. Every year it fell upon me, the owner, to wait on Mrs. Manny. Mrs. Manny came to Russ and Daughters every September to purchase 18 herrings to take home and pickle. In Hebrew, the letter Chet and Yud combined to form the number 18, but they also combined to form the word Chai, which means life. Mrs. Manny gave each of her children three pickled herrings as gifts for the new year and saved three herrings for herself to share with certain anointed neighbors. For many years, Mrs. Manny was content to buy her herrings from the display case in the front of the store. But that ended when she found out that Mimi Sheraton, then the restaurant critic for the New York Times, was allowed to pick her herrings right from the barrels in the back of the store. From then on, Mrs. Manny would accept nothing less when buying herrings for her family. Mrs. Manny and Mimi Sheridan were the only two Russ and Daughters customers ever allowed to go into the back of the store to select their herrings right from the barrel. The actual process of choosing which 18 of the approximately 250 herrings in a barrel would go home with her was treated by Mrs. Manny with the same degree of gravitas as had been devoted many years early, earlier to deciding which of the many girls from the neighborhood she would allow her sons to court, or which colleges they would attend. The battle, or rather the sale, would begin and end in the same way each year, 
If I was lucky, it would take a half hour. More often than not, it would take me way past closing time. First, I removed several layers of herring from the top of the barrel and put them into an empty bucket. It was understood that Mrs. Manny would never buy a herring from the top of the barrel. Then I reached into the barrel and fished out herrings one by one, holding each up and then turning it over in my hand for Mrs. Manny's inspection. It was as thorough an exam as any doctor would ever perform. While every barrel of herring that Russ and Daughters sold contained only top quality herrings, Mrs. Manny was determined to find the diamonds in those barrels. And I must say she knew what to look for. Clear, shiny, steel blue skin, plump but firm flesh on the back, and no blemishes, no marks, no bruises. Eventually we found enough herring for her discerning eye. Then she stopped showing up. There was no way of knowing what had happened. Did she get a bad herring last year? Did she find a better place to buy herring? Did her doctor tell her not to expend her strength preparing herrings or not to eat them anymore? Did she pass away? In some strange way, we missed her. Some years later, my wife and I were having dinner with new friends, a couple from our neighborhood. At some point, the husband and I began recounting stories from our Lower East Side roots. He was raised in a tenement above the shoe store owned by his father. There were five children altogether, all successful, and the four boys all went to Harvard Law School. He understood my daily life as a retailer because he and his siblings were required to work in their father's store on weekends and after school. The shoe store, named after his father, he said, was called Manny's. He went on to tell us about his familiarity with Russ and Daughters. It seems that every year his mother would go to our store before the Jewish holidays to buy herring from the barrel, which she would then pickle, jar, and give to her children as gifts, as if they were the greatest treasures in the world. None of the children really liked her pickled herring, but no one would dare tell her. But now that she had passed away, they miss both her and her pickled herring, and I miss Mrs. Manny too. That gives you a sense and we talk about other customers as well, of what the Lower East Side traditional customer was like. Uh, let me talk to you briefly, we have a little bit of time, about the change in the, in the products. I said everything has changed, the neighborhood, the customers, the employees, the products also. Some of the products change by a change of taste, and some change by virtue of man's heavy hand, our inability to conserve when that was necessary. The change of taste, for instance, um, people don't like salt very much anymore. Well, they like it, but they won't eat it, or they're afraid of it, whatever. So whereas the immigrant thrived on salt, and the first products that Grandpa Russ sold were pure salt products, schmaltz herring from a barrel it was all about herring caught thrown into a barrel of salt water brine and left there for six months, a year, two years, as they cured. The original lox, what you all call as lox now really is smoked salmon, but the original lox wasn't smoked at all. It was pure salmon thrown in big casks with salt. So the taste was originally salt, and that was the taste that was brought over from Eastern Europe. Salt cured and preserved fish. 
now we have 10 different kinds of smoked salmon, which are milder from various places in the world. Also, in, as a matter of change of taste, people today, especially young people, don't like to eat fish with bones. If you could genetically engineer a fish without bones, you'd be a zillionaire. But whereas chubs and whitefish were a, were a very popular item at Russ and Daughters, now it's become whitefish salad. So we take the bones out for you, make it a salad, and you eat it. Beyond the change in tastes, oh, and another change in taste, it used to be cream cheese that uh, you would eat uh, with the fish, and now we have, besides various kinds of cream cheeses with various flavors, we have tofu cream cheese of various flavors, and I'm hoping Grandpa Russ is not hearing this. But besides the change in taste, there's a change in the availability of fish. So certain fish you probably have never heard of, but they were very common in the day that Grandpa Russ and his daughters and his sons-in-law ran the business. Uh, so for instance, there was a fish called butterfish. Very sweet, very delicious, but it got fished out. You know, there was no conservation. Most of the salmon you buy today Smoked salmon is farm salmon because of the lack of conservation. In Russian daughters, we have both farmed and wild, but most places you'll buy salmon. It's about farm salmon. And then we have natural sort of phenomena that uh, affect the fish that's available. So whitefish that are Great Lakes fish are subject to the unwitting importation of species from foreign countries like the zebra mollusk uh, that attach to the bottoms of ships that are brought in and they're foreign to that environment and they displace the local, the local ecology uh, and therefore the fish, uh, it's, the, the environment is no longer hospitable for the fish. So you will find um, you will find that lots of fish that did exist no longer exist, and fish that you can find now won't be available to your children and grandchildren. Uh, so uh, and another example is something called carp, uh, which was a basic Jewish fish food, even on the other side in Europe. Uh, and carp was here, and carp is a, the carp is a bottom fish, and it feeds on the bottom, so often it has this a muddy, earthy kind of taste and flavor uh, that would be masked by putting paprika and garlic on it. Uh, and that was displaced by sable. And sable turned out to be a very plentiful fish from the Pacific. And I'm going to wind this up so you can ask questions. But sable, which was originally the poor man's, poor man's sturgeon, now is because it's being overfished largely by the Japanese is now as expensive as sturgeon. At any rate, in conclusion, uh, the story I tell, wherever I say Jewish or write Jewish, you can change that easily to, to Italian, to Greek, to Chinese, to Irish, to any ethnic group, because the story I tell is, is the story about uh, the, the immigrant story.
and it could be any immigrant group come over, you have to establish a business, you don't have much capital, you need the family to work, and then hopefully you make it better for the successive generations. So that's our story, it's not unusual. What perhaps is unusual is that 100 years later, after Grandpa Russ first had his push cart, we're still there doing basically the same thing. And whereas he and his daughters and their husbands did it as a matter of survival, I chose to do it, my daughter and nephew chose to do it, and it's become a matter of choice because we recognize that in the world of work, there's something valuable about what we do in our spot on the Lower East Side selling our products. I have um, two questions, please. One is, um, that to begin with, 100 years ago, they were skilled in some, in a, in a way, they had to know where to go buy the fish even. They had to pay for it. They had to know how much then to charge customers. So I'm curious about where did they get this fish from? How did they find you know, whoever you buy fish from? And the other question, please, is I wonder if you're in the same location and if you own the building so that at least you have some control over your rent. Uh, going backwards, your second question first. Yes, we own the building because as everybody knows in this town, if you don't own the building and you have a successful business, your landlord is your partner. And, and that factored into years when well, I didn't really talk about it, but I do address it in the book. All the years the Lower East Side was terrible and getting worse. And people would say to me, Mark, why don't you move your business uptown where your customers are? And the fact of the matter is, we own the building. We were historically located there. We had some aversion to having a landlord do that. And, and in a sort of flippant way, I would respond, sooner or later, uptown will move downtown. And guess what? It did. And it did with a vengeance. It's not that I was particularly prescient, but if you wait around long enough, 100 years, things are going to turn around. The, your first question was about, well, where did they find the product? Well, the fact of the matter, early on, there weren't that many products. There was herring originally, and the Lower East Side was filled with herring merchants. And then lox came in, and it wasn't 10 different kinds of smoked salmons. It was lox. And just let me uh, go on with that. And it wasn't expensive. They were buying or selling herring for 5 cents each, 3 for 10, they were paying maybe a penny each, so they didn't need a lot of capital. And, and smoked salmon, or lox, in the, even into the 1930s, was selling for nine, nine cents a quarter of a pound, and 35 cents a pound, and nobody was even buying a quarter of a pound. They were buying what's called a habafertal, a half of a quarter, an eighth of a pound. So they didn't need a lot of money, and it was constantly sort of, they'd make a couple of pennies and turn it back into the fish. Nobody was making a lot of money. You said there was plenty, you mean, so they came in by boat and maybe docked at the South Street Seaport? The fish, it had no, to no, come no. in the from fish somewhere. Itself. Yeah, yeah, no, the fish itself, um, the, the schmaltz herring that I'm talking about came from various places in the world. They didn't come from around here. Uh, the greatest herring producer, what we're talking about, we're talking about schmaltz herring. Schmaltz means fat. Most of you have heard of Schmaltz refer, uh, relating to chicken fat, but it really means fat. And these herrings were fat. They were North Atlantic fat herring. You know, zoologically, they were called Clupea orangus, but they were basically cold water fat fish 
Schmaltz herring. And, and actually, the biggest producer in the early 1900s was Scotland. Uh, and, uh, and that people may not know that or understand Scotland and herring, but if you think about it, kippers. Kippers are very Scottish kind of breakfast, kippers and bangers. And also of some interest is the coopersmith industry, which is barrel making, was started in Scotland to have barrels to put the herring into. But they also didn't conserve and fished out their herring. And then the, those same herrings were by and large caught in Norway and Iceland. They were brought here. Now, um, probably they went to the South Street Seaport, which was the big uh, point of, of, uh, of debarkation of, for products coming from overseas. Um, what happened with, with uh, smoked fish, when that started to enter the lexicon in the 1920s, um, now fish smoking had been happening all around the world. The Scandinavians have been smoking fish, the Russians have been smoking fish, even here the Native Americans have been smoking salmon, in fact, for hundreds of years. But it wasn't really a, a food in New York um, and what was happening is that they were getting huge amounts of salmon and, and, and sending them, particularly from the Pacific then, and putting them in casks of salt and sending them here by rail for transshipment to Europe. There wasn't a lot of salmon over there. Some of it stayed here. Uh, salmon is a kosher fish, and, and so the Jews who were more adventurous in eating got to like it. The, smoking, the smokers got a hold of it and started smoking it. Now you don't have to eat it so salty. We can wash off some of the salt, smoke it, have a different taste. Um, and so that's what was happening. So how late is the store open? I'm dying of hunger. <laughs> can we go? No, you got 10 minutes. It closes at 8 o'clock. We'll make a phone call. For those, <laughs> I no longer have any clout. My daughter and my nephew run I'll it. They, call. They, I'll tell them I know you. Uh, for those of you who don't know Russ and Daughters and haven't experienced it, uh, it's not far from here. It's walking distance on East Houston Street. It's in its historical location. Uh, again, the, the trajectory was a pushcart on Hester Street, and then the first door around the corner for its present location on Orchard Street. Now it's on its historic location since 1923. Um, Russ and Daughters remains one of the original probably the only original family still in business, in the food business, on the Lower East Side. Everybody else has sort of disappeared or sold out. Ratner's was still the same family. Ratner's the famous dairy uh, until maybe 10 years ago. And they started a phase out, and, and they became at some point Lansky's Lounge, a bar and grill kind of thing, and now it's a big high rise. Um, so they were one of the original families. Katz's Delicatessen, it's got the original look. It's never changed, but it's not the original family. That's changed. Yona Schimmel has the original look of, of 100 years ago, but again, that's not the same family. So we're the same family doing the same thing in basically the same location. So you ought to go, if you haven't been there, or for those of you who are around the world and come to New York, it's a worthy effort to go and visit a place that's, that's there and has always been there and is really part of the iconic scene of New York. But still, the store is not going to be open for you now. All right. But the real question is, when, when and how and why did you make a transition and put caviar in? Because that seems like a very elegant and costly kind of thing to sell. Where what did happened? that come from? Okay. We had always, Russ and Daughters had always sold some caviar 
just because customers were coming in, some of them became more affluent and were demanding the more affluent products. And so we were always able to get ourselves, our hands on some caviar, uh, originally Iranian caviar. And we had a long-standing relationship with a family that had been in the caviar world forever, uh, and their brand name was Romanoff. And that was the Dykeman Hansen family uh, that were originally purveyors of caviar to the czars in Russia. And when the supply of caviar and the Caspian Sea was going down, they came over to the United States to... We had lots of caviar here, by the way, sturgeon. And, and we were, at some point, uh, generating caviar that we were exporting to Europe. And it was coming out of the Hudson River, it was coming out of the Delaware River, and of course we screwed it up. Uh, we polluted it, we overfished it, and you can't find it. But back in the 17, late 17 and early 1800s, you could get caviar for free with a nickel beer in a bar. Uh, now, you know, it's... Now you, you can't even get it pr pretty much, or you shouldn't get it from the Caspian Sea. There's some around, it's all endangered. Uh, we, we polluted the Caspian, we didn't, you know, everybody was fishing there, particularly the Russians, polluted the Caspian, the Volga River as it comes into the Caspian. So what happens in the caviar world is, is basically what they call sustainable. It's aquaculture, it's farmed, and it's still incredibly expensive. Why is that? It's not wild fish, it's farm. Because these are sturgeon, you still have to grow. Now you own them because you have them in captivity. So you gotta feed them, you gotta protect them. They get wiped out by disease, you lose them. Uh, and, so it's, and, and so some of these sturgeon you gotta grow for five, seven, 10 years before they are mature enough to produce the eggs. So even though it's a sustainable business now, it's still very expensive. So, Back to your question, uh, uh, we always had some caviar. When I came in, and I thought that this was a natural transition for us, we have the supply availability, relationships with the good suppliers, that we ought to be moving the business in that direction. I found when I first came in, I came in the beginning of 78, a, uh, a letter from my father to a customer who was inquiring about the price of caviar, and it was dated 1969, and it was asking for a pound of Ru Russian or Iranian beluga caviar, and the best grade, because that's a graded caviar, my father said would go for $69 a pound. So, you know, when, when I stopped selling it, uh, it was probably about $2,000. Uh, and we were the first, we were the first to take it off the menu when it became threatened, and then it became endangered. So you really don't want to deal with this stuff now. Maybe it'll regenerate, maybe not, but it's, and it turns out that, you know, by years of, of playing with this stuff and producing it and failing and failing and failing, and they gradually produced uh, a caviar that's quite exceptional, and now almost every major country in the world has got sturgeon farms to produce caviar. The biggest in the world is being built right now in, in Dubai to compete with what was the biggest in the world, which is in Saudi Arabia. So um, they're not online where they're still growing their sturgeon, so it's hard to tell how it would come out. But at this moment, the best, I think the best caviar in the world is a golden Ocetra much like the golden ocetra, which should be called the Shah's golden ocetra, Iranian caviar, same close flavor, beautiful golden egg, 
is being farmed and is coming from a kibbutz in northern Israel. Go figure. So I'm, I'm kind of curious. It's, it's the house that Herring built, um, but obviously bagels and locks have become a huge portion of the business. Was there kind of a period of time where that kind of switched? Um, or was it, were they always both? Yes. No, no, that's a, that's a wonderful question. Uh, yes, there was. It was all about herring in the beginning. So that's what Grandpa Russ came over here to sell from a push cart and help his sister out. That's all there was. Uh, and then I say salmon came into the lexicon, locks, pure, unsmoked, salted salmon, and then smoked salmon. And, and actually the tastes, the tastes change, and the younger generations, particularly my generation, got turned away from herring. You couldn't, you couldn't give them a herring. You know, they'd say to a third generation Jew, uh, how about herring? Ugh, herring. You know, it reminded them of poor shtetl Jew, the old country. It was fishy, it was salty, it was smelly. They didn't want to deal with it, uh, except they had to because it made its appearance in every Jewish function, a birth, a bris, a bar mitzvah, a wedding. There was always a pickled herring there, right? So they couldn't get away from it, but they tried. I understood when I came in that herring is a wonderful fish. Maybe because I'm part Scandinavian and nobody knew this, um, I bet someplace in my previous lives it was Scandinavian because the Scandinavians regard herring as royalty. And they understand how what a wonderful fish it is. It's right on the top of the food panoply in, in Scandinavia and Northern Europe. And if you know history and you remember something called the Hanseatic League, it was a confederation from Scandinavia on down through Northern Europe and northern, uh, the city-states of Northern Germany, which was formed to protect the herring fisheries. It was the basic food fish. And herring allows for different sauces and preparations. You can fry it, you can bake it, you can turn it into chopped herring, you turn it into salad. It's wonderful. And so I thought I could turn the world, the th meaning the third generation Jewish concept, aversion to herring around and make them understand how wonderful it is and become the Mac herring of the world. I'd have arches in the shape of herrings. People could drive through and get a herring. And I tried this, and I expanded our line of herring from schmaltz and matches and chopped herring into herring with curry and lemon and fennel. And I had 10 different kinds of herring preparation, 15 different kinds. And, and then I got some play in the media and on television. But the same old Jewish customers would come in, and I would say, try this, try that, try this. And you know, the worst thing you can hear from a customer, you give them a sample, Interesting. And that's what you hear, interesting. So I came away with a conclusion, you know, there was no way to teach, at that point, there was no way to change their mind, and I constricted again back to the three or five different original herrings. Then, some years later, there was a famous writer for the New York Times, a guy named R.W. Apple Jr. Those of you who are a little older will know he famous byline, they called him Johnny Apple. He wrote about international politics, very serious writer, retired from the Times, and the New York Times, in his retirement, gave him a credit card and, and a mission, go around the world, Johnny, 
and eat and just write about it. Spend whatever you want, write about it. So he was sending dispatches, and then they had just started this section of the Times, a separate dining section. So Johnny Apple was going around the world and eating and writing, and so one point he was in Scandinavia and wrote this 10-page, wasn't 10 pages, two or three-page New York Times article about herring in Scandinavia and the various kinds of herring. He said, but if you can't get here to Scandinavia, you can go get herring in this restaurant called Ulrika, um, and she and I had been a team at some point, or the headquarters of herring in New York, Russ and Daughters. All of a sudden, the same, <laughs> the same old characters were showing up saying, hey, Mark, what happened to that herring and curry sauce you had? Where'd you put it? That kind of thing. And that, it's the power of the New York Times, that, not me, turned around the world and people started to appreciate herring and what a wonderful fish it is and the various permutations and combinations and preparations of herring. And so now we have an appreciation for it. But yes, it went from herring to smoked fish. And it's not that it's back to herring, but now herring is part of the accepted food. All right. Well, that's going to do it for tonight. Everybody join me in thanking Mark Russ Federman for being here Thank you. with us tonight. Thank you for listening.